when you look at the world and really give a, a good scientific look at what's going on in the world. The world of beings. There really is quite a lot of evil in the, evil in the world. Evil intentions towards each other. Wanting to harm each other, wanting to cause suffering for each other. They say humans are less prone to go to war in this century. But now we are becoming less violent. Which is exciting to hear, really. But it doesn't change how the world behaves and how the world works. Even in the human, among humans, you still can see. Now we see in high schools students beating each other up. Recently, there was a woman who, a woman, a girl middle school, not even high school, died of, uh, died in a fight with another girl, just by, just, just with a blunt object or fist fighting or something, fighting over a, a, a boy. In high school we hear more and more, or still quite often about Students going on shooting sprees because they were bullied. And we hear about these people who just decide to kill people to make a point or to bring fear. Even for religious reasons, they go to war or encourage fear in their fellow human beings. But humans should be a little bit above all of this. You know? and that's why you see, see both sides. You see many humans doing good things for each other, kind, being kind to each other. respecting each other and learning from each other. If you look at the animal realm, mostly we 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 look quite we look with rose colored glasses on, on the animal realm. Cats. <laughs> cats are a good example. We look at the cats, oh how cute. How innocent. 
How wonderful, my God. I guess some people even think it's wonderful when the cat goes out and catches a mouse or catches a bird. Some people like to have a, a cat. Many people like to have a cat around because it eats all the mice. You know. We don't, we don't think of this as a murderer. But even cats and dogs are quite tame in this regard. Mostly they get fed by humans and just for the fun of it they'll go and kill or out of instinct. And wild animals every, every day of their lives is kill or be killed. So this is, this is the way of the world. The way for most or for very great number, great percentage of the beings on this earth is kill or be killed. This is the cycle of viciousness towards each other. When you look all around us, murder is occurring constantly. Horrible beings are dying horrible deaths at the hands of their fellow beings. So in, in Buddhism, this is a reason why we see so much relative importance placed on what we call the Brahma Vihara. The Brahma Viharas are four things that, if you want to translate them one way, they're the abode of high-minded beings. But I think really they just mean the dwellings of God, or the uh, mind states that gods dwell in or the mind states that one need dwell in at the moment of death in order to be born, to, to arise as a god. But you can just think of them as for this reason as well, for, as just those dhammas that are for high-minded individuals. They're so high, so so high-minded. The Buddha called them the, the dwelling of God, or dwelling in Godhood. And so, a, a lot of our attention in Buddhism is paid to these four states, and you've got to think, well, rightly so, 
but at the same time it's important for us to put them into their place and be careful not to take them out of context, misunderstand them, like everything in the Buddhist teaching. In, in Vipassana, the four Brahma-viharas are often neglected. We often forget to include them or, or uh, lose sight of their importance. Sometimes we even just discard them entirely and just continue on with our Vipassana meditation. And and there's there's nothing quite so wrong with this. This is one of the ways of, of helping to understand the importance of the Brahma-vihara Dhamma, Brahma-viharas. Because m many people think that you need to practice the, the Brahma-viharas. They're, they're important in the development of wisdom and enlightenment. So people will even take the Brahma-viharas as their main meditation practice. And, and that's not wrong either. But, but practicing without the Brahma-viharas is not wrong either. So how do, we, how do we reconcile? How do we figure out what is the importance of these four things? The four Brahma-viharas are love, compassion, joy, and equanimity. Mostly we're already aware of this, or we've maybe heard of them under different names. They're also called the apamanya, which means the illimitable. Like when we do our chanting, apamano buddho, the Buddha is without limit. Well, these things are also without limit. It means they can be extended to infinity, or they, they know no end. There is no, there is no limit to, to the, the distance of loving-kindness and, and compassion and so on. Meaning you can develop these states towards all beings without limit. There's something that, uh, sh when developed, can be developed in, in an unlimited, to an unlimited extent, as we can have towards all beings. So when you when you take it as your main meditation practice, your goal is to develop this apamanya, this state of love for all beings, and even even go to into the into it as a jhana, a brahmavihara, where your mind is fixed on this state of love for all all beings, or compassion for all beings or joy for all beings, for the good that beings have done, or equanimity towards all beings, having no partiality towards any being. And then as, based on that, the, the clarity of mind and the peace and the tranquility of mind that comes from that, then you can develop vipassana. But it's a mistake to think that 
this practice, practice in this way, conquers the defilement. It solves the problem. It would be wrong to think that practicing loving-kindness in and of itself can lead one to enlightenment. It doesn't. It leads one to, to, to the God realms, the Brahma realm. There's a story about Sariputta teaching this Brahmin, uh, and he taught him the, the he taught him this practice, leading him to be born as a Brahma, because he thought, well, this this guy, he's a Brahmin, he he must like to go to the Brahmin realms, and so that's what he taught him. And he, when he went to see the Buddha, the Buddha reprimanded him and said, look. Do you, do you realize what you've done? You've, this, this man is now reborn in the Brahma realms. And an ordinary person would have said, yeah, so that's what I sent him. But Sariputta realized what the Buddha was saying, and I think, I think uh, from Sariputta's actions we can see what the Buddha meant. What the Buddha meant by that was that, Sariputta, you can't see the the qualifications of this person, like I can see his qualifications. But I've seen that this man had the potential to become enlightened. And Sariputta wasn't wrong because he didn't know, he doesn't have the power to see. So he thought that, well, I'll do the best I can for this man, he probably can't become enlightened. But the Buddha saw that actually he did have past uh, development that, that would allow him to become enlightened. So Sariputta went to the Brahma realms and taught him, they say, Vipassana, something like that, actually. Um, I'm not so sure about that. I'm not sure. I, it must have, because he would have been in the form realms, though. I guess a form Brahma can, can still hear the teaching. This is some story. But the point is that the Buddha was scolding him about just teaching to, to be born in the Brahma realm. Because as that motto goes, Mahasi Sayada tells this story, and... and about a Brahma that was reborn as a pig, and then he tells this motto, in Brahma's realm she shines bright, in, pig, pig pen, in pig's pen too she finds delight. And because of this, we know that being born even as God is not enough. Because samsara is, is, is without limit. Even though Brahma, a Brahma realm might be a profoundly long existent, it still has limit. And so when it's finished, samsara is still there. Samsara is not finished yet. And, and moreover, the, the, the reason why it doesn't lead you to finish is because the reason why we get angry in the first place, or the reason why we have greed in the first place, the reason why we have partiality in the first place is not because of lack of compassion or love or lack of the opposite state. It's because of lack of wisdom, lack of understanding. All unwholesome states are rooted in delusion. Vipassana meditation doesn't aim to do away with anger and greed, it aims to do away with delusion. Because getting rid of greed and anger isn't permanent. 
People can practice for many, many days or weeks or months without getting angry if they're practicing tranquility meditation. And they think they become enlightened. Sometimes when they've practiced and then they come to practice vipassana meditation afterwards, they they're shocked and realize that they still have such horrible emotions trapped underneath. And this is because of the strong attachment to ego and, and conceit that can't be cut out, can't be removed. It can even be it can even be enhanced through the practice of samatha meditation. People in other religious traditions actually get more ego, more more attachment to self or God or self and God or self as God or so on. Attached to themselves and their states and so on. Because they can't see that they're impermanent, unsatisfying and uncontrollable. But but it can be a good good support in our practice. And it can be a useful support because whereas Vipassana is aiming to get rid of the delusion, when you're doing this, well then there's still lots of greed and anger coming up. And that, that can be quite unpleasant and, and hard to bear for the meditator. It can even drive some people to, to decide to stop practicing. If you don't have enough patience, some people actually will run away and feel like this practice is not, not not beneficial to them because there's many unpleasant situa many unpleasant emotions coming up. They feel like a yo-yo. First pleasant, then unpleasant, pleasant, then unpleasant. And they'll say it as good practice, bad practice, good practice, bad practice. But what it really is is it's cra it's a craving and, and aversion, craving and aversion. When we say good practice, we mean we like it, and this is craving. When we say bad practice, it means we don't like it, and that's aversion. This can be quite difficult to bear, and with with wrong view, we can cling to it and say this means something's wrong with the meditation. Something's wrong with the meditation because these states are arising. But the truth is something's wrong with the mind. It has delusion. But if you can't see that, it can be quite difficult to practice and to, to progress because doubt is something that stops you in your tracks. Doubt is like a forked road. You don't know which one to take and so you get stuck at the crossroads. So for this reason, loving-kindness and, and compassion and joy and, and equanimity, they can be a great support for our practice. And we often uh, at least allow people to spend some time after their meditation to send good thoughts to their family, to their parents, to their supporters, to their loved ones, and to their enemies as well. Usually based on what comes up in their meditation. If they're thinking about their parents or their families, send love to them. If you're thinking about your enemies and they're upset about send love to them. At the very least, it will it will stop you from having wrong view. It will it will stop self righteousness from arising. It will stop you from. Uh, it, it will stop attachment from arising. 
worry from arising, when you're thinking about your parents and you're worried about them, as soon as you send them loving kindness, you feel better again, because you realize that, uh, or, or you, you feel that you're doing a good thing, that your relationship with them is pure. You connect with them, like, in a sense. You realize that the best thing we can do for these people is to send them loving kindness, is to have a good relationship with them. To, to be a support for them. We find that when you send them loving-kindness, your, your interactions with them in the future, are after that, or, or once you've begun to do it, um, are, are much more supportive and you're able to help them in ways you were never able to before. My parents, we used to fight and yell and scream, and it changed so much after I practiced. Still, sometimes we would maybe argue, but you feel so so much better to to help them and to do things for them and to uh, be be there for them. And so your your love for them, your the change in your attitude. It's a, it's a very good support for our practice. When we can't be with them and we want to be with them, we send them loving kindness, and we find that that. That turns off. We, we lose the idea, maybe I have to go home. And so, and so maybe we're still thinking about them and we still have the delusion and so on. But we don't have the wrong view or the wrong idea to stop practicing. When we send it to our enemies, we stop having the wrong view that, that, some, that, they're, that, that they are responsible for this. So sometimes in the meditation center people get angry at the teacher. People get angry at me. I don't mind if you get angry, but this is what loving-kindness is for. Right? When you're angry, so just make sure to always send loving-kindness. And You might still be angry, or anger might still come up, but you said in your mind this idea that I am angry at this person, but my anger arises from delusion. It doesn't arise from their behavior. Whatever they do to me, they kick me and hit me and speak nasty, speak badly about me and so on. All of this is just seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting and feeling. They can't affect my mind. Only my thinking can cause me suffering. Only my judging can cause me suffering. So we, we by, by, by the very nature of practicing loving-kindness towards the person, we're making a statement I don't want to be angry. Anger is the problem. This is the statement we're making, which is right view. So at the very least, it, it has that benefit, and it gives you encouragement, it straightens your mind, and helps you to progress in your body. Because it does have the effect of calming the mind. And it, does, it can have the effect of, of removing the anger from the mind, removing the greed from the mind. When you have love for a person, removes the anger, when you have compassion, it removes also the anger. It can remove the greed as well, depending. When you have joy, this removes the greed for sure. When you have jealousy towards someone, and then you'd say, jealousy is the problem. You say, this person deserves, may this person get what they want. You, you, you make a statement. No. I'm not going to listen to my my defilement you make a determination in your mind may they be happy 
may they not lose what they've gained. Even someone who steals from you, you can think, may they, may they enjoy it. And that, that sets your mind and you, it makes a statement, I'm not going to cling or, or uh, be self-righteous about how I didn't deserve to lose that. How dare they steal from me? So this is all the benefits of practicing the Brahma Viharas, even during the time we're practicing Vipassana. You can from time to time make a statement, may, may, may this person be happy, may they be free from suffering, may they uh, not lose the good things that they've gained. And with equanimity you can reflect how they are the heirs of their karma, whatever bad deeds they've done, uh, at, at, at least they should be pitied. That there's no reason to be to be angry or upset at them. And when, when beings are suffering, to not get sad or upset about it, to see that this is the nature of samsara. When we have loved ones who we, are, we, we miss and we're not able to see, we use equanimity as well to remind ourselves that this is the way, this is the, way the world goes. All beings go according not to our desires, but according to our karma, according to our act. We can't say, may this person not go away, may this not person not come. We can only go according to our own karma, and they will go according to theirs. But there's another way we can look at these things, and that is as a product of our practice. And this the Buddha talked about as well. He said, for a person who develops their mind and removes greed, anger, and delusion from their mind, they naturally incline towards all four of these. And this is really what's so important. It's one of the great important uh, goals or outcomes of the practice that we have to realize that if we can remember that it, it gives us much encouragement in our practice, you think, what am I doing here? From time to time we think, why am I here practicing? Maybe I'm just here to find pleasure and escape from things. Maybe this is escapism. Maybe I'm deluding myself. Maybe this is a person who is new, new to the meditation. For all of us who have been practicing, it's, we're pretty clear this is what we want to do. But there can arise these doubts about what, what good is it? What good is the meditation? So it's, it's, it's important to remind ourselves of the, the benefits, some of the, these great benefits of it. One of the great benefits of the practice is that it creates natural non-artificial love and compassion. Some people you, some people when I meet them I just want to run away because they're so kind. Very kind people scare me sometimes. Be because when someone's too kind you know it's, you know there's something terrible underneath. I've met people like this where they're so kind that you just think, oh I don't want to have anything to do with this person. 
maybe that's too too harsh, but where you can see that this is this isn't real compassion, real love, and so on. It's something artificial that they've created. When you practice vipassana, you you come to see the difference between artificial and real. You come to see what is constructed, where people are clinging to views, clinging to ideas, an idea of who they are. Oh, I'm so kind and compassionate. But don't spend too much time with them or you'll find out what they're really like. It's very easy to delude yourself into thinking you're kind and compassionate and instead realize that you're just clinging and you're manipulating other people into loving you, into, oh, you're so wonderful, so on. You have to be careful. This is artificial. When you practice vipassana, and vipassana meditators can become very dour as a result, when they say, no, no metta, no, no, no practicing loving kindness or compassion, only vipassana. And we all walk around, we're told to walk around like sick and old and dying people. And so many people come to the, our meditation centers and are horrified. They heard about how we're supposed to try to find happiness and here are all these miserable people walking around like zombies. But it's, it's one of the great reasons for this or for, for for this state of affairs in a meditation center is because we're determined to keep it real, as they say. If, if compassion will arise, let it be true compassion. If love arise, may it be true love. If joy arise, may I be truly joyful, tr truly happy for this person. I'm not going to pretend to be happy. I'm going to work these defilements out until I see the truth. Because to some extent, we, that's, this is because we've seen this. We've seen how much love comes naturally from our practice. We've seen how compassion comes naturally. Not, not open compassion, not obvious compassion. But we've seen so much suffering, and we've seen the cause of suffering, and we've seen it from an absolute point of view, a real, a real, the point of view, ultimate reality point of view, that we know it's wrong. We, know we, we understand suffering as wrong, as not the way to practice, not inappropriate causing of suffering, we understand to be inappropriate. People think that it's, it's a something different where I don't want to suffer, but I'm happy to make other people suffer. We think that that's deep down the case. We have these philosophers will talk about this. No? How do you keep people from being self-serving? Because everybody wants to stop themselves suffering, but and get the better of the other person, wants to find happiness for themselves, but the best way to do that is to take from other people. Someone challenges you, beat them up. Push them down. Step all over them. 
this is a mistaken view. This isn't real. This isn't the truth. The truth is when you understand suffering, when you understand that suffering is bad, when you truly free yourself from suffering, you have no, no, you're not able to cause suffering for other people intentionally. You can't intentionally cause suffering for another being because you know that that act causes something bad. You know that suffering is a negative thing. So you don't do anything that could cause suffering. It doesn't matter for you or for other people. Why would you cause something that's useless? It doesn't matter whether it's useless for you or useless for someone else. Why would you do that? And so you act always in line with what is What is for the purpose of freedom from suffering, the purpose of happiness and peace. And so if someone comes to you with a problem, you know that denying them, you know that uh, avoiding them, you know that blocking them off is a cause for suffering, for both of you actually. When you block someone off, when you avoid someone, when you speak harshly to them, you're, you're suffering horribly. So you don't do this. They come to you with a problem. It's amazing to see how meditators help each other and uh, are considerate of each other and can work harmoniously together. It's amazing to see how a place like this, how harmoniously we can work together. We're not fighting. How we're, we're not arguing, no. It's easy to lose sight of that. You think, well, that's normal, no? But it's not really normal. Even in the human world, it's not normal. Wherever you go in, in the human world, there's always arguing, there's always gossiping and backbiting and, and politics and intrigue and jealousy and stinginess and grudges and so on. Why don't we have that? Maybe we do, maybe I just don't know it. No. We, we, why the harmony? Because we see the suffering. We might get angry at each other, we very, probably we do get upset with each other and think, wow, that's not a nice. But we see it from, from, we see it as it is. We see the moment-to-moment the, the -moment phenomena that are arising. We don't see the other person. We don't think of them and their problem or, or their evil. We see the reality. We, see, we have hearing, we hear their sound. We have thinking when we think about what they said. We have liking and disliking when we judge what they said. And so, we have some very profound and, and natural love and compassion and joy and equanimity towards each other. Not becoming partial, not becoming favorite, uh, f favoring or uh, 
not becoming attached and not becoming angry or upset or, or cruel to each other. We always think, how can we help the other people? When a problem arises, we right away think of what is the solution for it. We don't think, oh, this is their problem, don't, I don't want it. You see, we, we do this in life, we do think like this. Oh, why am I working for this person? This is their problem, not mine. When there's food, we always, mind me first. And then when we get it and they don't, we laugh <laughs> cruelly. At it. When we were kids, I got it, it's mine. He took the last cookie and we laugh. <laughs> I got the last cookie. And we're like this in the world. Got the better of people. Oh, it's, it's horrible to see, you know, once you're a meditator, to watch people gleefully taking the last one or taking somebody else's parking spot. Or, taking advantage of someone else's mistakes, cheating each other and, and so on, finding ways to, to get the better of the other people. It's horrible to see, and you, you just get shocked by it, because you think, How, why is that person acting in a way, that, in such a, a way to bring so much suffering to themselves? How could someone possibly, how could someone intentionally defile their minds to that extent? You think this way, not, not intellectually, but you're oh, shocked by it. Wow. People actually hurt themselves to that extent. It feels dirty, it feels un unclean, that they're, like they're jumping in a pile of dung. And you think, oh, people actually do such things. So, one thing that we have to always keep in mind when we're, when, especially when we've heard and learned a lot about the Brahma Viharas is that the best use for them is as a goal, a, a natural outcome of our practice. That we should be kind and considerate and when someone takes advantage of us we should not be angry or upset. We should be happy for them that they've gotten something good and we should be patient, and we should be kind to them, and we should be equanimous when we have to deal with the... It's funny how you feel, can always feel taken advantage of. You know? these, the opposites of these four are always arising. So, with our patience, with our, our, de our devotion, our focus on the defilements that exist in our mind. We become naturally and purely loving, kind, compassionate, uh, sympathetic and impartial. And this is the true dwelling of a noble person, of a noble being, even beyond the, the dwelling of God. Beyond, beyond Brahma, beyond samsara. It's love without clinging, without striving, without developing. It's compassion without working or thinking. Not having to suppress anything, because there's nothing left to suppress. Acting out of 
clear awareness and wisdom. In fact, you might say it's not love or compassion at all, because you don't do it thinking, oh, I feel sad for this person. You act thinking, well, that's causing suffering, let's fix it. Or, this, this is the appropriate thing, now I must pick this person up, and so on. Acting, acting out of wisdom. Maybe you'd have to say it's not even compassion. It's not even love. But it certainly is the, the, the natural state, certainly is of the greatest benefit to oneself and others. It's even the dwelling beyond, beyond God, beyond love, beyond compassion. Because love and compassion have to be cultivated. If you want to be a, uh, have actively love for someone, you have to cultivate it. And when you stop cultivating it, it disappears. But wisdom, wisdom is like a light. Wisdom is, is like a, like seeing something. Once you've seen it, you, you can't lose that. You can't lose that knowledge. Because when, when you have the knowledge, the next time you see it, you see it as the same thing. And you, that is what it is, so there's no, there's no arising of delusion. Every time you experience, every time someone is yelling at you, they can't make you deluded about it because you know what it is. You're already there. That's hearing. And so you act out of benef benefit, desire for benefit for yourself and for others. Act out of an understanding of what is right, what is important, what is proper, what is harmonious, what causes least friction and stress, what causes the most harmony and peace. And constantly you're acting in this way. So this is the real, real, the highest dwelling. Maybe you can't call it a Brahma Vihara, but you might call it an Arya Vihara or a Dhamma-vihara. The Buddha taught the Dhamma-vihara. I've given this talk on the Dhamma-vihari, one who dwells in the Dhamma. So we can say this is the Dhamma-vihari, one who, this is the dwelling, the dwelling in truth, the dwelling in reality. It's higher than the dwelling of, of God. So, a little bit of thoughts about this because I think it's important to, to, to encourage ourselves in this. Most important is not to encourage you now to develop these four Brahma-viharas, but to see some, some light at the end of the tunnel, that this is where we're heading, this is where we should be heading, and to catch ourselves and to see, oh, I'm still kind of a miserable person in this way or this way, and understanding that's where, we're, that's where our work is. I still get angry at people, I still frustrated or uh, avoiding people or, or turning people down when they need my help and, and so we, we know what we have to work on because we obviously these are things that we we all want for ourselves we all want to be kind we all want to be compassionate none of us wants to be a mean and miserable person 
So we have encouragement here that this is very much worth striving for. This is what we're striving. One, one, one important thing that we're striving for, one way of looking at the results of our practice and seeing them in a, a very positive light. So that's the pep talk for today. Now we continue on with our practice.